You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com, where you'll find all the back episodes. Find a link to send me a message and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece by Caitlin Johnstone. You find this at caitlinjohnstone.com.au. We keep our gaze fixed on Gaza. I hate every goddamn fucking second of this. I crack jokes here and there to highlight the ridiculousness of the pro-Israel position. But the truth is, I've never enjoyed this commentary job of mine less than I've enjoyed it this past month. Some nights I see dead kids when I close my eyes. There's a phenomenon called the Tetris effect, where if you play the classic puzzle video game a lot, you start seeing the colorful digital blocks in your mind's eye when the lights are out. For me, it's dead Palestinian kids. That's just my life now. As this horror drags on one seemingly endless day after another, I find myself acutely aware, not just of the unfathomable suffering in Gaza, but of all the other millions of people around the world who are having the same experience I'm having, staring this nightmare dead in the eyes, day after day, week after week, unable to look away in good conscience. I saw an account with the handle at exomarxy say something on Twitter that I relate to so hard right now. Quote, I don't want to talk about anything else. I don't want to work. I don't want to do chores or go to the gym or read a book. It reminds me of that feeling you get when a loved one is in intensive care. You feel every fucking second and your adrenaline won't settle and you can't sit still. It consumes you. It becomes your life. You take short breaks here and there to get some grass under your feet and feel the wind in your hair, but you're only doing it so that you can jump back in and wade through this thing with the attention and reverence it deserves. You can't let yourself burn out because if you do, you won't be able to do your own teeny tiny, almost insignificant little part to help this, to help fight this thing in whatever way you can. But it's more than that, really. It's more than the fight. There's also this acute awareness that if it turns out nothing we can do can stop the slaughter in Gaza, it's still important to bear witness to it. You feel a responsibility just as a human being on this planet to keep your gaze fixed on what's happening and to not look away. It feels sacred 
The responsibility, I mean. I don't even really know what that word means, but that's the only word that clicks into place and feels appropriate when I describe this responsibility to witness the mass atrocity in Gaza with eyes wide open. It's a sacred duty that we have to our species, to the universe even, maybe. It could be as simple as an urge to resist the calls from the powerful to look away. All the world's most powerful institutions want us to avert our gaze, to scroll on, to dissociate, to take our attention elsewhere. We're all engaging in a very simple act of defiance by bringing attention and awareness to the very last thing the powerful want our attention and awareness on, one pair of eyes at a time. So we keep our gaze fixed on Gaza. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how horrifying it gets, no matter how much we cry, no matter how often we slump over and feel like we can't do it anymore, we keep our gaze fixed on Gaza. Because what else can we do? Nothing else feels right. Nothing else feels responsible. I don't know when this will end or why. I don't know if it will end because all the opposition made it politically untenable for Israel and its powerful Western allies to continue. Or because there was nothing left to bomb. Or no one left to kill. It kind of feels like that's none of my business because I'm in this with all of me, no matter what, come what may, my life doesn't really feel like it belongs to me anymore. Anyways, that's enough of that for the time being. Mainly, I just wanted to let everyone who's holding this same vigil know that I see you and I appreciate you and I value you and you are not alone. And you never will be. I raise my glass to you beautiful, beautiful souls. Thank you so much for bearing witness. This next piece is published at movingtrainmedia.com. Written by me. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Since there is a deliberate and concerted effort on the part of many to define the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, as a call for the genocide of the Jewish people from Israel, it is important for those of us that use this phrase to correct this false narrative. The majority of us that use this phrase envision either a single free state or two free states in what is now Israel and Palestine. In these free states, we envision no discriminatory rules or laws based upon an individual's religion or ethnic or national origin. We envision Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists, and other religious or non-religious peoples living together between the river and the sea with no restrictions on movement within any state no harassment from members of other communities, no rules that burden or unburden one group above another. We envision the right of return for all peoples forced to flee their homes in the last hundred or so years, and just compensation for the land and property theft of the past. 
we envision reparations for the systemic burdens and apartheid placed upon Palestinian and Israeli Arabs by the British and Israeli governments. We envision a system of truth and reconciliation to atone for past oppression, similar to what transpired in post-apartheid South Africa. Freedom for black South Africans did not require the elimination of white South Africans. Freedom for Northern Ireland did not require the elimination of Catholics. Freedom for Palestine does not require the elimination of Jews in Israel. Intentionally conflating the phrase from the river to the sea with the elimination of the Jewish people is similar to conflating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. The two are not the same, but their linkage serves to dismiss the validity of the opinions and perspective of the oppressed Palestinians and the people that support and defend their human rights. Claiming that the elimination of the Jewish people from Israel is the goal of anyone who uses the phrase is a fear-mongering tactic that serves the narrative of dehumanizing the Palestinian people and supporters while stoking hatred of Palestinians in the people of Israel. In the UK, the Labour Party has suspended MP Andy MacDonald pending an investigation for saying, quote, we won't rest until we have justice until all people, Israelis and Palestinians, between the river and the sea can live in peaceful liberty at a protest for Palestine solidarity. UK Home Secretary Suella Braverman has called for police to take action against people using the phrase or even waving the Palestinian flag. Braverman describes the phrase as, quote, widely understood as a demand for the destruction of Israel. While the original founding documents of Hamas did not mention the phrase, Hamas's updated foundational document of 2017, which is a major shift in tone from its earlier declaration, has added the phrase in Section 20. Section 20, quote, Hamas believes that no part of the land of Palestine shall be compromised or conceded, irrespective of the causes, the circumstances, and the pressures, and no matter how long the occupation lasts. Hamas rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. However, Without compromising its rejection of the Zionist entity and without relinquishing any Palestinian rights, Hamas considers the establishment of a fully sovereign and independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital along the lines of the 4th of June 1967 with the return of the refugees and the displaced to their homes from which they were expelled to be a formula of national consensus. That's a pretty remarkable statement from Hamas, whom the media paints as something very different than this statement paints, accepting the 1967 borders as long as human rights are respected and the right of return is respected. That is not what we're told that Hamas stands for. And that may, need, may not be what you see from Hamas with some of the actions of Hamas but it is the official statement of Hamas. Since Hamas uses this phrase, 
and Hamas has been roundly demonized in the Western media. Some people may conclude, whether honestly or not, that the phrase must have evil intent and truly seek the elimination of the Jewish people from Israel. That reading, however, negates other parts of the 2017 document, such as section 16, quote, Hamas affirms that its conflict is with the Zionist project, not with the Jews because of their religion. Hamas does not wage a struggle against the Jews because they are Jewish, but wages a struggle against the Zionists who occupy Palestine. Yet, it is the Zionists who constantly identify Judaism and the Jews with their own colonial project and illegal entity. Still, many people profess the anti-Semitism of the phrase, defining it in oppressive and even genocidal terms. But before the updated Hamas document of 2017, another political group in Palestine used a variation of the phrase. Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party had this language in their 1977 party platform. Quote, the right of the Jewish people to the land of Israel is eternal and indisputable and is linked with a right to security and peace. Therefore, Judea and Samaria will not be handed to any foreign administration. Between the sea and the Jordan, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. And the 2011 Likud platform uses this language, quote, the government of Israel flatly rejects the establishment of a Palestinian Arab state west of the Jordan River, as well as the Jordan River will be the permanent eastern border of the state of Israel. When all people are free from the river to the sea and the conditions are in place for all to thrive, then Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. Never again and again. As I write these words, there are children screaming outside of my window. And while they and I are safe in rural New Jersey and they are screaming in joy as they play in an inflatable bouncy castle, I know there are children in Gaza screaming. They are screaming in terror because Israel has brought terror upon them. They're screaming because their sibling has been murdered or their parent or their entire family or their leg has been blown off in the bombing campaign or been crushed as their building has been deliberately bombed into rubble or they have been blinded by shrapnel or they're screaming from their life experience of terror, bombs, lack of food, and intermittent water and electricity. And they are not the first, nor will be the last screaming children. They scream like the Native American and First Nations children, displaced and beaten and abused in settler attacks, forced marches, deprivation, and boarding school torture and abuse, screamed. They scream like the enslaved children in the Americas stolen from their homeland or born to or descended from those who were, who were beaten, abused, neglected, separated, raped, and forced to labor for vile people who saw them as property. 
They scream like the children of apartheid South Africa, controlled, deprived, and when they dared resist, massacred. They scream like the Jewish and Roma and other marginalized children put into concentration camps, met with all manner of horrors, many ultimately murdered by people who saw them as less than human. And like the German and Japanese children facing the firebombing of cities and nuclear weapons. The Western news media used specific language to drive a particular narrative when discussing Israel and Palestine. The brutal attacks from Hamas against settlements near Gaza on October 7, 2023 are invariably called unprovoked and are also called unprecedented. It seems only the Israeli side, quote, responds to aggression and is never the aggressor. Both of these characterizations are clear and plain lies. Unprecedented. After the Holocaust during World War II, in which several million Jewish people and members of other marginalized groups were systematically murdered, so many pledged, never again. But as we have seen in Gaza and more broadly in Palestine, have instead supported never again and again. Israel was born from genocide and born in genocide. It took the displacement of over 700,000 Palestinian Arabs from over 500 villages across Palestine to forcibly create the state of Israel against the will of the Arab residents of the land. This is known as the Nakba, which translates to catastrophe. When media promote the narrative that the attacks on civilians by Hamas are unprecedented in Israeli history, they are deliberately erasing the reality of the Nakba and the lived experiences of the Palestinian Arab population. While for the Holocaust the slogan might be never forget, for the Nakba it is never remember. In fact, Israel bans the reference to Nakba in Palestinian textbooks and prohibits institutions from holding commemorations of the Nakba. From the perspective of many, the Nakba was not just a historic period in the creation of Israel, but is an ongoing practice of the settler colonial Israeli state. The refugees created during the Nakba are refugees today with no state of their own and no right to return to the homes they were driven out of. And indeed, displacement is ongoing. Unprovoked, even more profuse than the promotion of the October 7 attacks is unprecedented, the narrative that the bloodshed was unprovoked is ubiquitous in Western media. It was not unprovoked. Hamas explicitly stated its primary reasons for the attacks. And while we don't need to accept their stated reasons as the only reasons, we can at least start there to understand why they took these actions. Calling the action Al-Aqsa Flood, Hamas explains the primary reasons as Israeli incursions and violence at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the ongoing settlement expansion and related violence in the West Bank. The Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem is managed by Jordan under an international agreement. During Ramadan in 2023, Israeli police began to evict Muslim worshippers from the mosque nightly who had attempted to stay overnight. 
On April 3, Israeli police detained a Jewish activist from the Temple Mount administration after reports they were planning to perform a ritual sacrifice at the Temple Mount. On the night of April 4, Israeli police stormed the mosque using stun grenades, rubber bullets, and batons, injuring at least 50 people and arresting 400. They stormed the mosque again on April 5. Palestinians have been dispossessed from their homes and land since before Israel declared its independence in 1948. In the early years, this dispossession came at a rapid pace, resulting in hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing to neighboring nations. In 1967, Israel invaded Jordan, Syria, and Egypt, eventually occupying the West Bank, Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip. After this occupation, Israel began to take more Palestinian land through construction of Jewish settlements in Gaza and the West Bank. While it ended the settlement project in Gaza in 2005 and dismantled its settlements, Israel continues to expand settlements and dispossess Palestinians in the West Bank. Palestinian farmers have fled their villages in the West Bank as recently as August 2023 due to apartheid laws, settler harassment, and violence and dehumanization by Israeli defense forces, including severe restriction of movement. And even since I wrote that a few weeks ago, since October 7, at least 13 communities of Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank have fled. Everyone in the community has fled due to ongoing violence from settlers and Israeli defense forces. Um, where farmland is ruined, destroyed, olive trees are cut down, settlers uh, enter into Palestinian Arab homes and threaten them to leave and have, in fact, killed them and burned their possessions in order to frighten them, frighten the remaining ones away from their communities so that Israel and the settlers can take over more land in the West Bank. The Israeli town of Sederet is about a half mile from Gaza at its nearest point. It was founded in 1951 as a development town to house Jewish immigrants and was initially populated by 80 families. After decades of expansion, largely from new immigrant populations, it had a population of 30,000 in 2021. By 2010, the city was 94% Jewish and less than 1% Arab. On October 7, the police station in Sederet was the site of a major battle between the armed Hamas fighters and the Israeli Defense Forces. But before there was Sederet, there was Najad. Najad was a Palestinian Arab village with an estimated population of 620 in 1945, all Muslim. Najad was destroyed in May 1948 during Operation Barak. Because of its proximity and its history, Sederat is a frequent target of rockets from Gaza. Sederat is also home to Sederat Cinema, or the Hill of Shame, where residents sometimes go to watch bombings of Gaza and sometimes cheer when the bombs fall 
as the bombs fall today, I wonder if anyone is on that hill and how they are responding. This next piece is published at nplus1mag.com. It's written by Sari Makdisi. Recently, an Australian-Palestinian friend of mine was invited to appear on Australia's national television network to discuss the situation in and around Gaza. His white interviewers posed all the usual questions. Can you defend what we've seen from Hamas militants? How has the Palestinian cause been helped by this violence? How can anyone defend the slaughter of young music lovers at a music festival? Do you defend Hamas? They probably expected a defensive reaction from him, but calmly, in his smooth, Australian-accented English, my friend had already turned the interview on its head. I want to know why I'm here today and why I haven't been here for the past year, he said gently. By the eve of October 7, he pointed out, Israeli forces had already killed more than 200 Palestinians in 2023. The siege in Gaza was more than 16 years old, and Israel had been operating outside international law for 75 years. Normal in Palestine was a killing a day. Yet a killing a day and a decades-old occupation was hardly news. It certainly wasn't justification for a live interview on a national television network. Palestinians were being given the opportunity to speak now because the Western media suddenly cared. And they cared as we should care, my friend added. Because this time... The victims included Israeli civilians. In the days after October 7, Australia made a strong show of support for Israel. Parliament and the Sydney Opera House were lit up in the colors of the Israeli flag. The Prime Minister said pro-Palestinian rallies should be called off out of respect for the Israeli dead. The Foreign Minister was lambasted for saying Israel should endeavor to minimize civilian deaths in Gaza. Well, what about our lives, my friend asked. What about lighting up a building for us? When our government lights up every building blue and white, how are we Australian-Palestinians supposed to feel? Are we not Australian? Should nobody care about us? A 14-year-old boy was set on fire in the West Bank by Israeli settlers. What about us? The news anchors were caught off guard. This isn't how these interviews are supposed to go. Those of us like my friend who are summoned by Western media outlets to provide a Palestinian perspective on the disaster unfolding in Gaza are well aware of the condition on which we are allowed to speak, which is the tacit assumption that our people's lives don't matter as much as the lives of the people who do. Questions are framed by the initial Hamas attack on Israeli civilians. The Hamas attack on Israeli military targets and Israel's belt of fortifications, watchtowers, and prison gates surrounding Gaza goes unnoticed, or at least unspoken. And any attempt to place it in a wider historical framework gets diverted back to the attack itself. How can you justify it? Why are you trying to explain it instead of condemning it? Why can't you just denounce the attack? If Palestinian commentators want to be asked about Israeli violence against Palestinian civilians, about the history of ethnic cleansing and apartheid that produced the contemporary Gaza Strip and the violence we are witnessing today, 
about the structural violence of decades of Israeli occupation that cuts farmers off from their fields, teachers from their classrooms, doctors from their patients, and children from their parents. We have to ask to be asked. And even then, the questions don't come. I've spoken to a lot of journalists from a lot of different media organizations over the past two weeks. With rare exceptions, the pattern is consistent, as it has been for years. A recent appearance on a major U.S. cable news channel was canceled at the last minute immediately after I sent in the talking points the producer requested I submit. They clearly weren't the talking points they had in mind. For years, I was on the list of regular guests for BBC radio and television interviews concerning Palestine. Until, during a previous Israeli bombardment of Gaza, I told the interviewer he was asking the wrong questions and that the questions that mattered had to do with history and context, not just what was happening right now. That was my last appearance on the BBC. How can a person make up for seven decades of misrepresentation and willful distortion in the time allotted to a soundbite? How can you explain that the Israeli occupation doesn't have to resort to explosions or even bullets and machine guns to kill? That occupation and apartheid structure saturate the everyday life of every Palestinian? That the results are literally murderous even when no shots are fired? Cancer patients in Gaza are cut off from life-saving treatments. Babies whose mothers are denied passage by Israeli troops are born in the mud by the side of the road at Israeli military checkpoints. Between 2000 and 2004, at the peak of the Israeli roadblock and checkpoint regime in the West Bank, which has been reimposed with a vengeance, 61 Palestinian women gave birth this way. 36 of those babies died as a result. That never constituted news in the Western world. Those weren't losses to be mourned. They were, at most, statistics. What we are not allowed to say as Palestinians speaking to the Western media is that all life is equally valuable, that no event takes place in a vacuum, that history didn't start on October 7, 2023, and if you place what's happening in the wider historical context of colonialism and anti-colonial resistance, what's most remarkable is that anyone in 2023 should still be surprised that conditions of absolute violence, domination, suffocation, and control produced appalling violence in turn. During the Haitian Revolution in the early 19th century, former slaves massacred white settler men, women, and children. During Nat Turner's revolt in 1831, insurgent slaves massacred white men, women, and children. During the Indian Uprising of 1857, Indian rebels massacred Englishmen, women, and children. During the Mau Mau Uprising of the 1950s, Kenyan rebels massacred settler men, women, and children. At Oran in 1962, Algerian revolutionaries massacred French men, women, and children. Why should anyone expect Palestinians or anyone else to be different? To point these things out is not to justify them. It is to understand them. 
every single one of these massacres was a result of decades or centuries of colonial violence and oppression, a structure of violence Franz Fanon explained decades ago in The Wretched of the Earth. What we are not allowed to say, in other words, is that if you want the violence to stop, you must stop the conditions that produced it. You must stop the hideous system of racial segregation, dispossession, occupation, and apartheid that has disfigured and tormented Palestine since 1948, consequent upon the violent project to transform a land that has always been the home to many cultures, faiths, and languages into a state with a monolithic identity that requires the marginalization or outright removal of anyone who doesn't fit. And that while what's happening in Gaza today is a consequence of decades of settler colonial violence and must be placed in the broader history of that violence to be understood, it has taken us to places to which the entire history of colonialism has never taken us before. At any moment, without warning, at any time of the day or night, any apartment building in the densely populated Gaza Strip can be struck by an Israeli bomb or missile. Some of the stricken buildings simply collapse into layers of concrete pancakes, the dead and the living alike entombed in the shattered ruins. Often rescuers shouting, Hadan Samiana, can anyone hear us? Hear calls for help from survivors deep in the rubble. But without heavy lifting equipment, all they can do is helplessly scrabble at the concrete slabs with crowbars or their bare hands, hoping against hope to pry open gaps wide enough to get survivors or the injured out. Some buildings are struck with such heavy bombs that the ensuing fireballs shower body parts and sometimes whole charred bodies, usually because of their small size, those of children, over surrounding neighborhoods. Phosphorus shells, primed by Israeli gunners to detonate with airburst proximity fuses, so that incendiary particles rain down over as wide an area as possible, set fire to anything flammable, including furniture, clothing, and human bodies. Phosphorus is pyrophoric. It will burn as long as it has access to air and basically can't be extinguished. If it makes contact with a human body, it has to be dug out by scalpel and will keep burning into the flesh until it is extracted. We live, one of Al Jazeera's Arabic correspondents said, talking over the ubiquitous buzz of Israel's lethal drones, enveloped in the smell of smoke and death. Entire families, 20, 30 people at a time, have been wiped out. Friends and relatives desperately checking on each other often find smoking ruins where close relations once lived, their fate unknown, vanished either under the concrete or scattered in the remnants of other increasingly unrecognizable areas. Survivors find themselves in one of the most crowded areas on earth with crumbling telecommunications, faltering electricity, failing medical systems, a looming internet outage, and an uncertain future. 
In 2018, the United Nations warned that Gaza, its basic infrastructure of electricity, water, and sewage systems, smashed over years of Israeli incursions and bombings, leaving 95% of the population without ready access to fresh drinking water, would be unlivable by 2020. It is now 2023, and the entire territory, cut off from the outside world, is without any access to food, water, medical supplies, fuel, and electricity, all while under continuous bombardment from land, sea, and air. Quote, Attacks against civilian infrastructure, especially electricity, are war crimes, pointed out Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, cutting off men, women, children from water, electricity, and heating with winter coming. She continued, these are acts of pure terror. Von der Leyen is right, of course. But in this instance, she was referring to Russia's attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure. As for Israel's attacks on Gaza's infrastructure, Von der Leyen says that Israel has the right to defend itself. Nine hundred, one thousand. 1,500, 1,800, 2,600, 3,500, 4,600, 5,000, 5,900, 6,500, and this original piece stops there, but we know since this was written, 8,500, 9,500, 10,500. The fatality figures with which no one can keep up are augmented every few hours with another 20 here and 30 there as this building or that is brought down in a cataclysmic burst of fire, smoke, and rubble. Three or four hundred people or more are being killed every day. At one point, health sources in Gaza reported 100 fatalities in a single hour. For every person killed, there are two or three or more wounded, often severely. Almost half the dead and wounded are young children. Some of the most painful images coming out of the current bombardment of Gaza as in the ones in the past, are those of dead children, battered, ashen, covered in soot and dust, wrapped in the final embrace of parents who were killed trying to protect them. So far, with no end in sight, Israel has killed almost 3,000 children, and that number now is well over 4,000 children. The dead and wounded are often simply recovered body parts, charred legs, trunks, heads, are taken to hospitals overflowing with casualties, running out of medical supplies and fuel for their emergency generators. Hospital beds have long since been fully occupied. New arrivals to Gaza's hospitals crowd together in their own blood in hallways or on the pavements outside. Doctors report napping on operating tables on which they now have to operate without anesthetic by the light of mobile phones, using household vinegar to clean wounds because they've run out of everything else. With morgues full to capacity and cemeteries running out of space, health authorities in Gaza have started storing bodies in ice cream trucks. With blood dripping slowly from doors and blazoned with the bright childish colors of ice cream brands. In alleys, courtyards, and makeshift mosques, those who are able to gather in silent tears and prayers over arrays of bodies, large and often pitifully small, wrapped in blood-soaked shrouds in preparation for burial. 
relative sob over each bundle, give a bobbing forehead one last kiss as it is taken away for the last time, leaving only weeping mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, and cousins in each other's arms, their own turn in their shrouds, surely not far away. Sometimes there are no relatives. They're all gone too. The scale of the death and destruction is so massive, so unrelenting, there's often no time to mourn. And every day, every hour, the Israelis shower more death on Gaza. One hospital has begun burying the anonymous dead in mass graves for lack of any other option. In the first week of the round-the-clock bombardment, the Israelis said they had dropped 6,000 bombs on Gaza, a number equivalent to about a month of bombing at the peak of the American wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, countries many, many times larger than the Gaza Strip. Iraq is over a thousand times larger than the size of Gaza. They also claimed to have dropped over a thousand tons of high explosives by the end of week one. We were, in other words, already into the kiloton measurements of nuclear weapons, and weeks two and three are upon us. In the first week of bombing, 1,700 entire buildings in Gaza were destroyed. Many times that number were damaged, often beyond repair. Each building includes seven, eight, nine, or more separate apartments, each one of the former home of some family now either homeless once more or dead. As ever, the Israelis claim that they are targeting, quote, the terror infrastructure. As ever, the bodies or body parts actually pulled from the rubble or picked up from the neighboring streets are mostly of women and children, unlikely constituents of the phantom terror infrastructure from which the occupying power, with the blessing and benediction of its superpower patron, claims to be defending itself. It's obvious from the harrowing footage coming out of Gaza that the Israelis, unable to locate any clear military targets, no guerrilla fighters in the history of anti-colonial struggle have ever stood around waving their hands and making themselves obvious targets, are indiscriminately striking civilian targets instead, systematically destroying one concrete building after another, often annihilating entire neighborhoods at a time. The UN estimates that Israel's bombing campaign has already damaged or destroyed 40% of all of the housing units in Gaza. On its websites and social media accounts, the Israeli state proudly boasts of the success of its campaign against Hamas. But the evidence it musters generally amounts to photographs of urban ruin, and the result is a carefully calculated infliction of mass homelessness on an entire population. On October 12, the Israelis told one million people in the northern part of Gaza to flee for their lives. But there is nowhere for them to flee to, and those who attempt flight compound risk upon risk. The Gaza Strip is all of 140 square miles. It is already one of the most densely populated areas in the entire world. If the United States had the population density of Gaza, it would have 60 billion inhabitants. That's 60 billion. And now the Israelis are bellowing that they want the tiny territory's population to somehow squeeze into half the remaining area. And anyway, 
They are bombing the south of Gaza as well as the north and the center. Nowhere in Gaza is safe. Already refugees once or sometimes twice over. 80% of Gaza's population are refugees, survivors or descendants of survivors of ethnic cleansing of the rest of southwestern Palestine in 1948. New refugees find themselves in search of refuge once more, even as the Israelis warn darkly that there is far, far more to come. On October 14, a column of terrified refugees making their way north to south down Salah al-Din Street in Gaza City, specifically singled out by Israeli leaflets as a safe corridor, were bombed and 70 survivors of other bombings were killed and scores more injured. Doctors and clinics and hospitals in northern Gaza refused to move altogether, saying it would be impossible, primarily because there's nowhere to move their patients to. All the other hospitals are full, said Dr. Yusuf Abu al-Rish of Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. And the other thing, he added, most of the cases are unstable. And if we want to even transfer them, even if there are extra beds in the other hospitals, which is not true, they will die because they are too unstable to be transported. Patients in the ICU, newborns in incubators, people on ventilators, they would all just die if they were moved. Of course, they might die if they stay put too, especially once the last drops of diesel run out and the lights go off. Or if the Israelis continue to bomb hospitals and ambulances as they have been doing, already a third of the hospitals and clinics in Gaza have had to shut down due to lack of resources. The specter of death is hanging over Gaza, warned Martin Griffiths, UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. With no water, no power, no food, and no medicine, thousands will die. Plain and simple. A few days ago, the Israelis said that it would be best, on the whole, for the entire population of the territory, over two million people, half of them children, to leave, either to Egypt or to the Gulf. We aim, the Israeli analyst Giora Island said, approvingly, quote, to create conditions where life in Gaza becomes unsustainable. As a result, he added, Gaza will become a place where no human being can exist. Major General Ghassan Aliyane of the Israeli army, echoing the defense minister's recent reference to Palestinians as human animals, said, quote, Human animals must be treated as such. There will be no electricity and no water in Gaza. There will only be destruction. You wanted hell. You will get hell. What kind of people talk like this with the godlike sense of their power over literally millions of people? What mindset produces such genocidal proclamations on the disposition of entire populations? What we are witnessing before our eyes is, I think, unprecedented in the history of colonial warfare. Ethnic cleansing in itself is unfortunately not as rare an occasion as one would like. Only a few weeks ago, 130,000 Armenians were driven in terror from their homes in Artsakh by, not coincidentally, Israeli-armed Azerbaijan. In the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s, thousands of people of the, quote, wrong religion or ethnicity 
were expelled at a time from their communities in Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatia. Almost all, 90% of the Christian and Muslim population of Palestine itself was ethnically cleansed by Zionist forces in 1948. And we can go back to the 19th, 18th, and 17th centuries and recall the sordid history of genocide, extermination, and slavery with which Western civilization made its enlightened presence felt all around the planet. But in no instance that I know of has ethnic cleansing been accomplished through the use of massive ordnance and heavy bombardment with ultra-modern weapon systems, including the one-ton bombs and even heavier bunker-buster munitions used by Israelis flying the latest American jets. Such matters are normally conducted in person with rifles or at the point of the bayonet. The ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 was carried out almost entirely with small arms, for instance. The Palestinian civilians massacred at Deir Yassin, Tantura, and other sites to inspire others into terrified flight were shot with pistols, rifles, or machine guns at close range, not struck by thousand-pound bombs dropped from F-35s flying at 10,000 feet or higher. What we are witnessing, in other words, is perhaps the first fusion of old-school colonial and genocidal violence with advanced state-of-the-art heavy weapons, a twisted amalgamation of the 17th century and the 21st, packaged and wrapped up in language that harks back to primitive times and thunderous biblical scenes involving the smiting of whole peoples. The Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, and of course, the Philistines. What's worse, if anything could be worse, is the near total indifference on display by so many in and out of government in the Western world. Given the shock and outrage over the Palestinian massacre of Israeli civilians expressed by journalists, politicians, governments, and university presidents, the nearly blanket silence concerning the fate of Palestinian civilians at the hands of Israel is deafening. An earth-shattering, bellowing silence. We who live in Western countries didn't support or pay for any Palestinian to kill Israel's Israeli civilians. But every bomb dropped on Gaza from aircraft the U.S. provided is added to a bill that we pay for. Our officials are falling over themselves to join in the encouragement of the bombing and to rush the delivery of new bombs. State Department officials issued internal briefings calling on spokespeople not to use phrases such as, quote, end to violence or bloodshed, restoring calm, or de-escalation or ceasefire. The Biden administration actually wants the bombing and killing to continue. Asked about the tiny handful of more or less progressive congressional voices calling for a ceasefire and a cessation of hostilities, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said, quote, We believe they're wrong, we believe they're repugnant, and we believe they're disgraceful. There are not two sides here, Jean-Pierre added. There are not two sides. Government spokespeople are calculating and insincere. The ultimate nihilists, they don't actually believe in anything, least of all anything they say themselves. 
But the same cannot be said of the people all around us who so desperately moved by the images and narratives of Israeli suffering have nothing to say about Palestinian suffering on a far greater scale. How can anyone be so heartless? I'm not talking about overt racists who explicitly call for the destruction of Gaza and the expulsion of the Palestinians. I'm talking about ordinary people, many, maybe even most of them, solid liberals when it comes to politics, advocates of gender and racial equality, anxious about climate change, concerned for the unhoused, insistent on wearing face masks out of humane consideration for others, voters for the most progressive of Democrats. Their indifference is not personal, but a manifestation of a broader cultural culture of denial. Such people seem not to see or recognize Palestinian suffering because they literally do not see or recognize it. They are far too intent, far too focused on the suffering of people with whom they can more readily identify, people they understand to be just like themselves. Of course, the corporate media know how to encourage such forms of identification, how to construct protagonists, and how to make viewers sympathize with the subject, to imagine themselves in her shoes. And throttling information, Western media outlets cut off access to identification with Palestinians and reaffirm the perception that there is only one side. Meanwhile, on Al Jazeera Arabic, whose team of correspondents in Gaza and elsewhere in Palestine and Lebanon have been providing gripping and unflinching coverage of the catastrophe in Gaza. Tragedy unfolds in real time. On October 25, the Gaza bureau chief, Wael Dadu, was on air when he received news that his wife, son, and daughter were killed in an Israeli airstrike nearby. Footage shows him on his knees as he weeps and places a hand on his teenage son's chest. They're taking their revenge on us through children, Dadu says. For those of us glued to Arabic Jazeera these days, to whom Dadu is a familiar face, the loss feels personal. Some lives are to be grieved and given names and life stories, their narratives and photographs printed out in the New York Times or The Guardian, along with photos of mourning parents. Other lives are just numbers, statistics, coming out of an accounting machine that doesn't seem to stop adding new digits, 20 or 30 at a time. And I think now it's very clear, as that piece pointed out at one point, that after 30 days and 10,000 dead and more than 4,000 children, after intentional bombing of media, individuals, their families, UNRWA, refugee camps, schools, infrastructure, bakeries, factories, homes, etc., throughout Gaza, that the goal of Israel is not to defeat Hamas. The goal of Israel at this point is very clear to make Gaza unlivable so that the population there must either flee or die. Here's a final piece for this episode. This was also written by me, published at movingtrainmedia.com.
witnessing genocide. What we are witnessing, if we are paying attention, is an escalation of the ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people by the state of Israel. It is the same overarching story of settler colonialism, like the genocides committed by settlers in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and many other nations as they were formed and grew through the displacement of the indigenous peoples of those lands. After murder and displacement and the destruction of hundreds of communities of Palestinian Arabs, after the invasion and occupation of neighboring nations, after the broad settlement of Israelis on occupied lands, after harassment and sabotage and violence against the indigenous by settlers forced more of the indigenous residents to abandon their land, after several previous mass bombings of Gaza, after the imposition of apartheid laws in Israel against Arabs, after the bulldozing of homes and infrastructure and ongoing depopulation and displacement, we now have more bombing of Gaza, more genocide, more murder of people, more collective punishment. And the world watches. And some cheerlead and excuse the genocide and materially support Israel in its actions. And the U.S. blocks a mild Security Council resolution calling for restraint and sends more weapons, more tools of genocide to carry out the elimination and displacement of people previously restricted to a concentration camp disguised as a city full of refugees and the children of refugees and the children of the children of refugees and some shout and some whisper stop and some march and talk and write and teach and learn and speak and we look for any lever any button any means to slow the genocide and there are too few levers so we go about the difficult task of building the levers of finding the cracks in the facade and desperately by hammer and pen and keyboard and placard and speech and fingernail, apply pressure to those cracks to chip away, to reveal the truth, to develop a new understanding of the reality under the facade. Exposing genocide is a first step to ending genocide. How we get from genocide to post-genocide to reconciliation to freedom is a tough path, but not an untrodden path. There are many on it already. Truth and reconciliation, reparations, right of return, land back. It's of course for the victims to determine what the appropriate remedies are to begin to make them whole. But here are some general thoughts on what it will take to change the structural dynamics that underpin the oppression. We need reparations for stolen land and homes and property, for denial of human rights and dignity, for denial of economic opportunity, for restriction of movement, for physical harm, for bombing and rocket fire, for deaths of family members, for emotional harm. We need guarantees of freedom and recognition and respect for human rights 
physical freedom, equal access and treatment under the law, equity in education, economic opportunity, access to goods and services, ownership of property, right of return, and decolonization. So how do we take steps in this direction? How do we make the cost of continuing genocide greater than the cost of ending it? The cost of perpetuating oppression greater than the cost of halting it? The cost of maintaining apartheid greater than the cost of dismantling it? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions on Israel exposing Israeli apartheid and oppression so the public see the horrors and understand the dynamics of the relationship between the Israeli oppressor and the oppressed Palestinian. Globally shaming Israel for apartheid and violence until they understand that the cost of continuing the oppression and genocide is greater than the cost of ending it. Then, working with all parties to restore recognition and protection of universal human rights and appropriate reparations for harms committed. Free Palestine And that's a path that we've walked before elsewhere, not often enough. There are many places that also are in need of a number of these remedies, uh, not the least of which is the U.S., for its multiple historic genocides. But the path has been walked. In South Africa, they're on that path, um, having had one of the most famous examples of apartheid in modern times, um, that has been dismantled. Not everything is solved there, but long strides have been made towards more freedom and more equity. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com to uh, find out when episodes are released and news about all of my podcasts. You can follow me in the Fediverse at Moving Train Media at collectiva.social. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. <laughs> 